episode of Cultural Capital, our podcast in Melbourne focusing on new releases and other Melbourne cultural content. Anders Furs and Andy Hazel. Hello, hello. And hello. So today we're going to do a review, a review of Mustang, which is coming out on June 23rd at Select Cinemas nationally. We're going to discuss the Scorsese exhibition at Acme currently. We'll move on to our... Uh, the first of a possible semi-regular segment segment about Melbourne films. We're going to talk about Monkey Grip from 1982. And to finish up, we'll look at some of our um, personal favourite coming-of-age films. Everything is open to the end of the day. I'm tired. Everything Mustang is directed by Denise Gamzer Ergovan and it was the nominee for um, the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film um, last year. What do we think of the film? I thought Mustang was a very, very interesting film. I have a lot of great things to say about it. I think it's, it, take, it kind of takes you by surprise because it, to look at the poster, you see five girls who quickly find a sister's and it turns out they're living in a coastal uh, town in Turkey in a big house they share with their uncle and their grandmother. The film opens with them bidding this kind of emotional farewell to, this, to a teacher as the school year finishes and then very quickly, very, very quickly, it kind of be- becomes this story about female oppression much more. Um, I thought they handled it in a really, really interesting way. The pacing I found really fascinating. It seemed to move in a way that I have never seen a Turkish or French film about coming of age you know, much more quickly than I was expecting, which I think is a large part down to the editing by Matilda de Van Moosel. Anders, were you glad you hitched your way into this Mustang? Yes, very happy I uh, hitched a ride on this film. Um, it's very well made and performed. You're right, there's this sort of formal lightness about it. I don't know, it, it does, it moves quickly, it's all... It's very nicely shot. It's not overwrought, which I think is very important because it's dealing with some pretty heavy issues, really, heavy themes. Um, I think that made it uh, more enjoyable. If Well, it's weird to call it an enjoyable film, but it was. I, I don't know. It was... A, I don't know. It accentuated the emotional aspects of the story, I guess. I thought it was very, yeah, very watchable. The acting was incredible. Um, particularly from this cast of very young girls. They were un- uh, non-professional actors, I believe. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Back. Well, they made very convincing sisters, I thought. I thought it was really, really well cast. Mm. And it also felt like this really unusual privilege to get an insight into this one most oppressed, secretive, you know, groups of people on the planet, this, you know, Islamic women who are living in a country like Turkey where they're kind of sheltered away from everybody. And as this film kind of displays, like, shows you, it's, it's a lot to do with women as property, you know, mm. this oppression that everybody's living under. Nobody seems very happy. <laughs> mm. I thought it was a great film. I really enjoyed it. I watched it a second time. And, um, Andy, it's interesting that you mentioned the opening scene is them sort of bidding farewell to this teacher who goes into Istanbul. Um, so the, the girls have connected with her. But I'd forgotten that that scene happened because the first scene that I remember is the following one where they go to the beach and they're sort of enjoying themselves with friends and then they go sort of and pick some apples and steal them from an old man and then and then it sort of um, accelerates the story and they get in trouble from their 
conservative grandmother and their conservative uncle and then the story goes from there. So I'd forgotten that, that first bit and just kind of remembered um, the unfairness of their oppression. I did like it as a whole. I thought there were a few problems with it though. You mentioned the pacing and I thought that was probably quite good but just there's sort of so these these women are not allowed these young girls are not allowed to leave the house until they are married because any exposure to to men um will sort of de- uh, demoralize them immediately um and i found the jump to them getting married off to be a little bit too abrupt it was um, quite sudden yeah, yeah and ma- perhaps there were perhaps there were several months or you know a year in between those, the times of them kind of getting trapped inside their house and then needing, and then getting married off, but perhaps it was only a week. Well, there was a scene where somebody was expecting one of the sisters to come back to school and she was leaning out the window saying no, so I assume that there was the summer break, so it was a few months. A few months, yeah. Yeah, that was actually, it's funny you raised that point, both of you, because that was the moment where I sort of got my bearings about, in terms of time in this film, it's all very sort of nebulous, I guess, it's like it's... Yeah, you're right. Is it a week? Is it a month? Yeah, and I also found, so the youngest girl, Lale, who is the most engaging, I mean, she's sort of the the main driver of the narrative, but she is the most engaging, um, and she has this wonderfully expressive face. She sort of drives the story by being the occasional narrator, but her narration doesn't come in until 15 minutes into the film, and I found that really, like, dislocating, because we hadn't had the the narration in the opening moments to set up the fact that this would be a story that was narrated. Um, and so I found that yeah, a little bit this, Yeah, odd. listening back, like thinking back onto it, I, it seemed to me like a film that had almost been remade for a Western audience. I felt almost like, you know, um, Harvey Weinstein had might have had a, a mm. role in editing it somehow, even though I'm sure he, he, he didn't. But it did seem like this was a story that you could tell over three, uh, three hours and, you know, to an audience used to a different pace of cinema. But, but then, yeah, to do with this, you know, rapidly shifting time, this editing, this mm. slightly dislocating narrative, narration that it possibly didn't need mm. as well, I thought was a bit more hand-holding. Yeah, and what did you think about the music? Warren Ellis loved it. I mean, it was interesting to look at the credits and see a lot of the stuff. He was going through his back catalogue. It yeah. seemed like there was some stuff in the late 90s he did. And was... Yeah, yeah. I didn't... I must say that there was a moment where they used one of his pieces of music from the assassination of Jesse James and I really didn't like that mm. because that piece of music is so associated with this other mm. film to put it in this new context a completely different one you know a different continent a different time period um was just really it just didn't work mm. for me right but <laughs> overall I think like the finale with the Warren Ellis music worked very well but there were just a few odd moments yeah, I, I'd agree with that. That reminds me of, I was watching Australian Story uh, earlier this year and the carol theme came over it. That's <laughs> the most bizarre juxtaposition of context <laughs> oh I've ever experienced. Um, but I loved the ending, I've got to say. I really thought that was, and this is where that opening scene mm. is vital, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I just thought it was really nicely played. It was sort of like a perfect moment of a perfect emotional high point to that woman's, that young girl's story, her coming of age, if you will. Um, yeah, so I, I think that redeemed a lot of the film for me, really. Yeah, It's really, it's a really important film and it's a beautiful um, look at these five girls' 
lives and trajectories and how they um, navigate their ways differently in, in the constructs of their society. So um, I know I mentioned a few negative things about it, but I think overall it's a very strong film. Absolutely. I think it's one of the better ones to come out so far this year. Mm. Um, and you just mentioned a little earlier about some bizarre juxtapositions. Have you been to any exhibitions recently which may have involved bizarre juxtapositions of uh, objects and... Uh, and music. Yeah, so I went along to Scorsese, which is showing at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This is an exhibition taken from Scorsese's personal archives and curated, basically telling the story of uh, this guy who's been making films for, what, 50, like half a century now. Um, and I, as I wrote, I reviewed it, and in my review I wrote that um, he's like such a firm part of American movie, the American movie-making establishment that you sort of forget how good a filmmaker he is, or I think so anyway. So I think it was a really interesting um, reminder of just how formally accomplished he is and like the stuff he does, um, you know, with cameras and editing, editing in particular, um, I found really interesting. Um, yeah, but speaking of weird juxtapositions, I mean, it's it's interesting when whenever you have an exhibition like this, um, I think managing sound and screens is very important. And where Scorsese, I think, uh, lets itself down is the, in the smack bang in the middle of the exhibition, they've got a clip from Taxi Driver sort of playing... Um, either on loop or every couple of clips it comes around again and it's got that very distinctive Taxi Driver score which mm. is an amazing score but oh my god does it like bleed into the rest of the exhibition mm, right. so I, I found a lot of the audiovisual um, components of that exhibition kind of bled into each other they were too too close to each other so you couldn't really focus on one thing because there was always something like close by that was interrupting I think overall uh, it's really well designed. So it's designed in, what, 11, I think I counted, different sections. Some of them look at uh, the technical stuff, some of them look at his personal biography, mm. and some of them are focused on the themes he explores. So most obviously there's, like, the New York City section that has, like, a, a, a big map of New York with, you know, screens showing excerpts from films and their shooting locations. Um, it also has what I thought was the highlight of the film, which was his series of photos of Little Italy from when he was growing up uh, in the, what, the 50s and the 60s. Um, mm -hmm. And they're these amazingly intimate sort of portraits of uh, Italian New York street life on the street, life in these tiny apartments. Um, and they're really, it's really interesting to see them because, like, from these photos, he's built an entire filmmaking career that's, you know, dominated American movie making. And I, I think you can sort of trace a direct lineage back to these sort of amazing, small, unassuming pictures. I think they, they were the highlight of them. And there's an amazing poster for, I think it was the French Cinematheque's uh, re visit, re retrospective um, Scorsese retro a few years ago. Uh, there's an amazing poster for Taxi Driver. It's one of the best sort of film posters I've ever seen. Um, yeah, but, yeah, so, I, look, I think on balance it's definitely worth going to. Um, and... There's always a danger with this kind of exhibition of it just being like, uh, you know, here's some objects, here's some costumes, here's some sets, here's some movie-making paraphernalia, and that's about it. Um, but I think it tells, you know, it's been curated in such a way that it sort of, it goes into his preoccupations. It's not just 
let's look at some shiny costumes, right. I guess. What do you think, Eloise? Yeah, did you find it was hagiographic? Or did, you, did it kind of critically... That's exactly the word yeah. that I was going to use. I think that these, these exhibitions have... Or are at risk of being a little bit like that. And I did. There's just one thing I'm going to bring up that I thought was particularly unnecessary. There's a, a sort of a room, um, one of the rooms which they've curated, which is all about Scorsese's like musical influence and the music he uses. Um, it's okay. I don't know. It doesn't really add anything to the exhibition or to an audience's appreciation of Scorsese's movies, I imagine. But there's like a title card um, and it's, it's got a music box with single with records, um, and the the title card says, "Since he was a child, Scorsese has loved music and collected records. Many of these songs are used in his films." And I'm just like, <laughs> "That's so boring. Every single director <laughs> likes music and uses music that they've heard in their life in their movies. It's just it's really unnecessary. So it's like, how great is Scorsese for doing all of this stuff that is." basically just required of any filmmaker but just like having said that he is a very important filmmaker and as Anders says this exhibition reminds us of you know how he traversed genres in his filmmaking um he traverses um eras and styles of of filmmaking um so that that is all very impressive and it also goes into sort of his influence in other directors films and of course his um, incredible contribution to the history and preservation of, of films um, with his film foundation. Mm. Um, so that's really important yeah. that, that, that it highlights that sort of thing. On that topic, I, I called a curated hagiography, and I think it kind of is. It's a convention, it's a genre of exhibition that these big, uh, you know, cultural institutions now really use. We've had Tim Burton, um, you know, we've had... Uh, the David Bowie exhibition from yeah. last year. It's sort of, it's a thing that draws a the crowd. The Dennis Hopper. Remember the Dennis yes. Hopper one? Yes. Stanley Kubrick one was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And some of them work, some of them don't. And I think this one, you know, if you're going to do that kind of a big commercial exhibition, I think you can't do it much better than the way it's done here, even though there are um, a few issues with it, I guess. I think what... What also is interesting is the men and women section. There's a big section on how Scorsese directs interactions between men and women, and it was very, mm. I think, almost self-consciously defensive about the way he directs men and women. There were a lot of, you know, um, oh, look, at this is a hallmark representation of a woman on film because of it, it, this is a major criticism of Scorsese that is he a misogynistic filmmaker? Mm. Uh, and I think the, the exhibition of is, you know, not... Uh, uh, interested in asking that question that's interested in maybe preempting us from asking that question mm. which I found interesting yeah right um, so it says he's playing at Acme until September 18 in Melbourne uh, hello dogs in space welcome to Melbourne It's law, it's the vibe. Vibe? Yeah. History to our futures. Speaking of Melbourne and the representation of women on screen, this brings us to the beginning of what we think will become a fairly regular segment in which we investigate a film that has used Melbourne as a location. The first one we're going to be looking at is Monkey Grip, 
which only actually uses Melbourne fairly passingly as a location. It was mainly shot in Sydney, but it had yeah. Sydney pretending to be Melbourne. Mm. But it still features many like iconic locations that you can spot pretty easily now. Now, Louise, what did you make of revisiting 1982's Monkey Grip? I love Monkey Grip as a film and as a as just a concept in general. I think I, I read the book about four years ago. A friend and I read the book at the same time and then I watched the film and it sort of resonated with me in, in many ways in my life at that time. Um, so the book was written by Helen Garner, of course, in 1977, I think, and it's uh, well known to be autobiographical. The film I love and I think it does, it serves Helen Garner's book very well. I think it also creates this, incredibly memorable portrait of Melbourne, even though it was only filmed in Melbourne for a week, as Andy said, um, and there's a few things, like there's one of the the swimming pool that's meant to be Fitzroy Pool was actually um, something in Sydney that was made up to, to look like Fitzroy Pool, um, and probably some of the, you know, townhouses were actually Sydney. Yeah, I suppose we should give a bit of backstory about the film itself. So essentially it explores the life of a woman played by Noni Hazelhurst, who is potentially playing Helen Garner. As, I think. Yeah, it's very... As an up-and-coming writer. Mm. In, in a scene full of you know inc- exciting, interesting, creative people who are living in Melbourne's you know, inner north, which is, looks a lot grottier than it does now. In well, a, I think it was a lot grottier <laughs> than it, than it <laughs> is so. now. And that's what's really interesting about revisit or visit. I I myself visited this film for the first time um, for this and uh, seeing how this portrait of Fitzroy that really it's a Fitzroy that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And I mean, is that is that a Melbourne that's gone? Has it gone to different suburbs? What uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. I think one of the things that draws me most to this film is kind of spotting the locations. There's this particular um, location that I only noticed when I revisited the film this time, which is... So they go to Sydney for a few days, and then um, Nora, who's played by Noni Hazelhurst, and her daughter, who's played by Helen Garner's daughter... Alice Garner, they arrive back in Melbourne um, and I assume they got the train to Spencer Street Station and they get into a car and in the background is this um, single-storey brick structure that at the time was a, a pub, I think, called the Savoy. For most of my life it was this, it was shut down, it was just this boarded up, graffitied brick structure that I used to go past on my way to the footy. And now it's been reopened and kind of jazzed up as this new fancy Savoy bar and restaurant. And actually, I think it's projected to be pulled down for a 160-storey skyscraper or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, just spotting that kind of location in nineteen in early 1980s when it was still going as a pub was really interesting to me. I do just really love the investment in Nora's life though as she sort of tries to find a new relationship and tries to you know and she does succeed I think in having friends and um having a life while having a a daughter and being a single mother. Mm. Even though it's it's ostensibly about being creative in a very kind of 
a highly active scene where there's drug taking and gigs and all that sort of stuff, it still felt like it operated at a lower energy and relied on you liking the characters or relating to the characters more. And given that we're all three writers and creative people who live in and work around Melbourne's inner north, did you find these characters relatable? Yes and no. I, I, what I did not find relatable was how easily she seemed to be uh, making her writing career pay. Um, uh, so that, you know, that, that once again, that's a window into a Fitzroy that's now lost. Yeah, I did. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I didn't... Yeah, there, there is an odd energy to the film, I think. It's, it's very... It's, it's kind of... It is kind of laid back. It's kind of... You've got to pay attention to what's going on. You know, I think for, for many young people at that time, uh, probably was, you know, an accurate portrayal. It was definitely an accurate or semi-accurate portrayal of Helen Garner's experience in that um, scene, I guess. Um, yeah, all that kind of stuff I found interesting. I found, you know, it's a really interesting time capsule. And the the use of the divinals I found really interesting that was, too. Yeah, that stood head and shoulders for me. It yeah. was the most interesting thing with seeing Chrissy Ampler and seeing the mm. energy she brought. Oh, she's got such raw, an energy. Yeah, this raw, untamed sort of feel. Mm. You could tell she hadn't been to acting school. And she was just yeah, she's wonderful. Great. I wanted to watch a lot more of her I concerts. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That final uh, performance when I do the, where she performs the song, it's just like this rush of energy right at the end mm. of the film. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was where I thought it really came to life. Yeah. Um, because it, it was interesting in the way the characters are introduced without much backstory and... Mm. And it, and and with particularly at the beginning with Bruce Smeaton's weird harpsichord score that had seemed to have nothing to do with the characters, nothing to do with the, with the situation I or agree. the story. That's that was really out of place. It felt like something that someone on a film on a funding body was like, "Well, if you put my friend Bruce's music in, then we'll give you this." Sort of. <laughs> it seemed like it seemed like it wasn't a very smart directorial move. But, but quickly the divinals turn up and <laughs> suddenly it's all is all is good. Um, Young Michael Caton, I found interesting yes. seeing him. I've never seen him, probably. Oh, really? I've never, no, in my mind, he's always been from the castle onwards. So it was, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if we're deciding that this is maybe not a great film, but it just resonates with us because we are from Melbourne and we are all sort of similar creatively, perhaps, to the characters. But I just want to bring up, there was a, a contemporary review of the film in the New York Times. Oh, I read that. Um, which is the most... <laughs> scathing, awful yeah. review. It basically says, this is a terrible film, it's a big soap opera, and you can only relate to soap operas if you like the characters, but these characters are just awful and, like, totally self-involved. And the author, who is a, a female author, I can't remember the name, the reviewer's name. Janet Maslin. But she's very awful towards Nora and says, oh my God, I can't believe how quickly she switched sexual partners. She says it's a... A, like a dull tale about ageing hippies. I'm like, people in their 30s are hardly ageing. Anyway, it's just... But it does very much kind of latch on to this. Australian films are over there. They're about other people, so let's not even pay any attention mm. to them. Mm. Maybe um, if they'd gone on a trip into the outback instead of to Sydney, they might yeah. have... <laughs> yeah, it might have resonated more. Might have played more. well to the New York audience. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to bring up that review because it speaks very poorly of the film and I don't think it's entirely accurate, but it does mm. perhaps pick up on something about the attitudes towards Australian film that maybe we 
do latch onto them more because we're local. Well, it does seem to be like a reverential approach to the text. Mm. There's these kind of swathes of you know of the books turn up in, mm. as narration. That's true. Yeah. Well, Garner did adapt it, didn't she? She wrote. She wrote the, the screenplay. screenplay. Yeah. yeah. But then a lot of the criticism seemed to be not understanding why she chooses to stick with people who obviously not good for her or not good for her daughter to be around. Yeah, I'm like, hasn't everyone made bad decisions I mean, in their life? I would that we were all so objective when it came to relationships. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't judge her for that. What I, you know what I really liked about it too? That really, it's really infused with this laconic Aussie, like, you know, she calls everyone mate. They, mm. like, insult each other lovingly. You know, I think she calls... Um, the Colin Friel's character, oh, you know, you're such a wanker. Like, but in a, like, kind of heartfelt kind of way. So I, yeah, I really dug that kind of stuff. Mm. And also the repeated motive of her and her bike. Mm. Some things yeah. never change in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Monkey King Grip, um, I think we're giving it a, a wary thumbs up. I I think that everyone needs to watch it. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's held up as a hallmark well, of literature at least, and I think, you know, justifiably. Yeah, it's well worth a watch, particularly if you're interested in Melbourne on screen, for sure. Top three. And now we move into the last part of the podcast, uh, top three coming-of-age films. So we'll start at three and we'll work up, but also could you give us a bit of a backstory as to what a coming-of-age film is to you? Yeah, sure. So, look, when I was putting together this list, I was really thinking in terms of films that are about, um, I guess, young people, mostly teenagers, I think, um, coming of age. Uh, young people... Um, Navigating, I guess, that liminal space between like being a kid and uh, becoming an adult, and I wanted to focus on films that sort of helped me in my own coming of age. I guess I've begun with number three, which is a f American indie film uh, which I rewatched the other day and really liked, *The Chum Scrubber*, oh, directed by cool. Ari Posen, Israeli American filmmaker. I saw that when it came out. It's um, quite a. <laughs> it's like. There was this raft of post-American um, Beauty sort of suburban ennui films. And this is the most interesting one, I think, because it's got this bizarre kind of odd, surreal energy running through it. So basically it follows a bunch of characters. The main character is played by Jamie Bell, um, and he's sort of like this guy who's on prescription meds, teenager. His like, parents are both self-absorbed. Everyone's very self-absorbed in this movie. So he's the main character, but then there's a bunch of other sort of subplots about all these people living in an upper-middle-class suburban enclave in what I think is California. Um, and, uh, yeah, all everyone seems to be drinking wine all the time, and, um, I don't know, there's this bizarre kind of, like... <laughs> it's such an odd film, but I totally recommend watching it. It's hard to, it's hard to explain. So over the course of the film, he escapes this oppressive, self-interested um, suburb, I guess. Um, and But the film suggests that he escapes it by getting uh, this girlfriend and hanging out at this suburban mall. So, like, the narration comes on right at the end and says that his character, I think the literal um, word is escaped, his character escaped, but it shows them, like, hanging out at, like, the Grove shopping centre. 
and it's like, has he escaped? I don't, I don't know. But anyway, it's it's a really interesting, bizarre. Yeah, I can't say we're bizarre enough about this movie, but yeah, I liked it. Cool. Okay. Um, well, I mine aren't in any particular order, um, but I thought of Splendor in the Grass, Elie Kazan's film from 1961, um, which features Warren Beatty and Natalie Wood as mm. teen lovers, um, but they're, you know, it's sort of this story, this very um, heartbreaking story about two teenagers who love each other, but their parents don't want them to be together, um, and they sort of, they get trapped and they get um, misled by all sorts of conservative constricts on their lives um, and sort of it, it ends up that they get broken up and they get split up by circumstances and then they end up marrying other people and at the very end they as sort of adults they come together and they meet again and it's this just really heartbreaking moment where you think about if there weren't, you know, adult interferences in their life, then they would have had, they would have been much happier. And it's a realisation where they both kind of realise, oh, well, this is what it means to be an adult, is making sort of just responsible and necessary decisions that don't necessarily allow you to follow your heart or your desires. Um, it's very heartbreaking. Anyway, I was sort of reminded a little bit of the Umbrellas of Chaborg when I oh, right. when I rewatched it because the same sort of thing happens there. But I think, as a film, it just kind of covers almost all of the hard decisions about coming of age. Interesting. Um, my number three was Alessia Halmstrom's My Life as a Dog from 1985, which I chose because it kind of explores not only the personal but the social. Um, aspect of coming of age so there are a lot of inner realizations and a lot of seeing yourself where you actually stand in the world as an adult would see you rather than how you've been seeing yourself up until that point so it tells the story of this uh, 12 year old boy called Ingmar who moves to this Swedish town in 1958 and he um, rapidly kind of becomes part of this this town full of eccentric people who are almost character like caricatures in a way and he falls in with um a girl called Saga, who's a tomboy, and they start boxing. They start. He starts bonding with with animals. He starts getting becoming part of this community. And all around, you know, he, there's occasional narration where he keeps seeing himself as Laika, the dog that's been sent out into space. And he starts wondering, you know, about the soul of the dog and the welfare of the dog, and who would send a dog out with no food, and all these sorts of strange things. But then, he also comes to terms with a lot of bigger adult problems like death and mental illness and the Cold War anxiety that's going on around. So I thought it was. It just kind of captured that transition really beautifully and in, in this kind of contained world that suddenly starts opening up I thought it was also mm. quite beautifully shot as well mm. and it's also you know 1950 Sweden isn't a place that many of us might bond with but we can certainly mm. sort of bond with the challenges he faces and the realisations he goes through. Cool. So my number two is uh, a classic of the genre. It is Mike Nichols' The Graduate, um, <laughs> which is held up, I, I guess, as um, sort of, it's one of the AFI's top 100 American movies, sort of, yeah, people, it's generally accepted as classic, although it's interesting to see that it's now sort of being reappraised and perhaps not in such a positive way. But um, I think it's a very well-made film about listlessness and... Um, escaping social pressure, particularly, I think, speaking to that 1960s, um, that time in America where, you, could you say that American society came of age? I don't know. Um, but it is, it's very much speaking to, you know, that hippie 
movement, I guess, young, the young movie-going public of the 60s. What I love about this film, it's very interestingly made. It's got that fabulous Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. And the ending, the final shot, is Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross. They've just got married. They're both on the bus and they've fled their parents off to God knows where, just escaping their oppressive upper-middle-class existence. And they're sitting on the bus and then Mike Nichols just holds that camera the look of realisation on both of their faces when they go from this sort of elation to this... the beginnings of a... questioning of a, oh, what what next? What, what next? And then it sort of finishes. It's just like this briefest of gestures, briefest of glimpses. I think that's what elevates this whole film because it really is an important part of coming of ages. <laughs> Well, where to next? So, look, I think it's a really um, interesting film for that kind of reason. It's, it spoke a lot to me when I watched it. spoke a lot to me when I watched it as a, as a late teenager. And I do wonder if I revisited it now, um, how I'd feel about it. It's one of... Do you ever have that moment where you really connect with a film at a specific time in your life and you... I'm almost hesitant to go back to it. Mm, to, it is interesting, yeah. you know, because my mother queued seven times to watch that film in the '60s because it, you know it had, it had the, exactly what you're talking about, and she was, you know, she was saying how you know everybody you know un- bonded with Benjamin Braddock and look at how stupid you know the the adults are played. But going back and rewatching it, she was like sitting down with me, going, "You've got to watch this. It's my favorite film of all mm. time." And suddenly she was like, "Oh no, it's actually kind of skeezy," and and Bancroft is you know this lecherous woman, and then you start seeing it from this totally different way, and then. I think you're absolutely right. It does really shift your sympathies shift with that because it was written as almost like a coming of age story for America at that time as well, coming you know with the Vietnam War and all these other things that were going on. So I think yeah, I think it's a brilliant choice. I actually I contemplated it, but I felt like oh maybe he's a touch too old. But I think <laughs> you've just talked me into making it. I should have been on my list too. Well, I think we can sort of expand the definition of coming of age beyond just being a simple teenager. Um, a, a, a few on my list certainly do try and expand that definition. So my next one is Chantelle Ackerman's News from Home, an essay documentary film from 1977, which is basically just a a montage of of images that that Chantelle Ackerman filmed in New York City. So at the age of 20, I think she moved to New York from Belgium, and she lived there for about two years. And the film is just images of her filming in New York with an soundtrack recorded of Chantal Ackerman reading letters that her mother sent her during her years away and it really kind of is just this very um, attentive look at a woman a young woman trying to make her own way in the world and being both drawn to and also wanting to kind of separate from and become independent from her mother and her home life. And I think it really does this excellent job at showing how you can both want to become your own person and also stay connected to your family. And it Mm. highlights that tension of just trying to kind of grow up and and become a new person um, or finding yourself in a really kind of meaningful way. Yeah, and especially in somewhere like New York, Mm. which is... New challenges all the time. Yeah, and because it's it's only um, a series of images of the you know the streetscapes, it doesn't actually deal with her 
finding her way or making friends or, you know, having a living space. It just shows the city in all its grungy 1970s glamour, I guess. But it doesn't try and kind of put any outside structures on her sort of coming of age and finding her life. It just tries to illustrate that through the tensions of, you know, motherly love. Um, it's interesting, it's a really strong contrast to my number two, which is Nikki Kaoru's Whale Rider from 2002, mm. going from New York to this tiny mm. village in uh, New Zealand. I really, I really bonded with this because it almost ignores the, the physical and emotional turmoil of coming of age just to focus on the spiritual development, which I thought was really interesting and not something I'd seen many times before. Mm. So it tells the story of Pai, this 12-year-old girl who really wants to become the chief of, this, of the tribe of which she's part. But that's always traditionally been reserved for a man and it's been reserved for people who... Um, are able to receive knowledge from the elders, which are also men. And there are all these roles of fate that seem to be saying that she's the right person to be making these, these decisions on behalf of her, her community. And she, so she starts sourcing the knowledge in these, in these um, kind of backwards ways, getting secrets from people and, and doing favours and all this sort of stuff. And she keeps showing her father as being the most important person in her life and the person who is correct to be making this decision, but she is trying to convince him in her own way. And so... I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. It's like beautifully put together. That, you know, Keisha Castle Hughes' acting is, is incredible. Like, and she seems to age, you know, over the course of the movie as she amasses this wisdom. And um, Nikki Kara never turns it into like a, a story of sexism or this kind of dewy-eyed look at you know indigenous communities. It's always done in this terms of leadership and in terms of you know of acquiring knowledge and, and you know coming of age in, on your own terms and in your own way. And so, I thought that was a pretty strong, <laughs> strong bid for the coming of age film. Yeah. Cool. Um, so my number one is objectively a bad movie, but it does mean a lot to me. It's um, Todd Stevens' 2006 film, Another Gay Movie, which is a sort of gay version of American Pie. Um, so he's, the director, is, it's very conventionally shot. This guy, he wrote um, Edge of Seventeen, which is sort of held up as a hallmark of, of gay coming-of-age cinema. And this is, it follows like four gay guys at this uh, high school called the Santorum High School, which I think is a joke about Rick Santorum, uh, the, um, the conservative Republican congressman. The school's mascot is the Santorum donkey or the STD. It's like, it's just like, it works on that level. It's very, it's very, very trashy, but it's also very, I think, important because it's unashamedly sexy Graham Norton is in this movie, and he plays he plays this like uh, foreign exchange teacher who also runs a sex dungeon, and there's like hilarity ensues when one of his students who has the hot room turns up and doesn't know what water sports means and all that stuff. Um, it's 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 total sort of gay or queer wish fulfillment. They live in this California city where homophobia doesn't exist, and everyone's very gender uh, and sexuality fluid, I guess. Um, and over the course of the film, it follows these four gay men as they try to lose their virginity before college, and they all do, and they all sort of come of age, I guess. But it was really, it was the first movie I saw as a gay teenager myself where, well, that had queer characters in it, really. It didn't problematise them. Like, a total queer reclaiming of American Pie, which I think is a really, you know, I've, I think I'm very glad that, uh, someone went and made this movie because it really spoke to me as a teenager. And I rewatched I re it a couple of days ago and, like, it's kind of lame and probably problematic if you think about it too much. But also, uh, it's an important movie and I'm glad mm. it exists. Wow, I've never heard of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm recommend checking it's, it out. Is there actually a, is there a previous one? Being called another gay movie? Is there like no, no, there's not. Which is interesting. There's a sequel which has uh, Perez Hilton show up. <laughs> Uh, so they're very good at the stunt casting and like cameos. Um, uh, just getting off coming of age for a second, but there's this American studio called TLA Releasing, and they sort of specialise in these quite commercial, queer, gay, very sort of cisgender, white gay stories. But um, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting trend uh, of filmmaking, I guess. And I guess they there's there's a big enough audience for them in America to to make these kinds of Fairly trashy, but but good, I think. Yeah, on balance. Yeah. <laughs> okay, my third choice is probably a little bit um, just off the cuff because I've been thinking about it so much in the last couple of weeks. It's a current release called Hello, My Name is Doris, directed oh, yeah. by Michael Showalter, um, starring Sally Field as someone in her 60s. Um, and she's been working in the same data entry position for decades, probably, and has been caring for her mother, who passes away at the end of the film. So the film kind of tracks this woman who very clearly has a stunted emotional um, growth, I suppose, because she has been caring for her mother and been in that role for so long. Um, and it's I wanted to mention it because it's, much more light-hearted than, than the other films I mentioned. Um, it is a comedy, but there are obviously tearful moments. I, I definitely teared up, um, although I do that quite easily, I'll mention. So, um, but it's kind of, it's really wonderful because it traces her, Sally Field sort of gets a crush on a younger man and then goes and does all of these really recognisable things to try and get into his radar, I suppose. Things that I myself have probably done, you know, where you um, you force yourself into someone's life and then you pretend that it was just a random coincidence that you're in the same place as them. And he, the man who she has a crush on, kind of, you know, welcomes her into his friendship circle. And so she just has this really beautiful... There's a few, you know, classic coming-of-age movie montages where she becomes ingratiated into these people's friendship group and goes and out onto the street and goes shopping and gets her nails done or, or something. Um, and then at the end there's another coming-of-age classic montage where she kind of cleans up her life and decides to actually, you know, take charge and, and go in a different direction. Although it's about a woman in her 60s, it is sort of a coming-of-age film where she um, chooses a different direction to go in and kind of learns to become um, a loving, uh, open person. Right. Um, and Sally Field is, is great. She's the highlight of the film. So. <laughs> cool. Anyway. Brilliant. That sounds awesome. Um, for my number one, um, I guess I can begin by asking if you guys have even seen this. Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. No. no. Right. Okay, amazing. Okay, 1970 Czech surrealist film. This is ostensibly about a girl getting her period, but it actually turns into this crazy fever dream of this series of images as, as she goes through this week where she falls asleep in the park and then gets has her earrings stolen which become this, this symbol of um, purity and this ability to fend off all the challenges and things that will come that she can expect in the next 10 years of her life. Mm -hmm. it, it's very, very strange in that people keep shifting identities. She's not sure who's part of her family. All the authoritarian figures in this Czech village start um, either lusting after her youth or her the, the, the um, or actually wanting her blood in some way. So there's vampirism, there's witchcraft. All, all these sorts of uh, 
strange surrealistic um, threats. So nothing, but everything is done in such a strange farcical way that there's never any fear for her safety or, or anything like that. It's, it's, it's as if she's still kind of viewing things through the innocence of childhood. But I, I gradually over the, the course of the movie, which is only about 80 minutes long, she starts to work out who her friends are. She kind of falls for the people, but then they they start changing their identity. So it's all this this manic kind of confusion, but it's so luminously shot and has such a fascinating, beautiful score by a guy called Lubos Faiso, who I don't think ever has done anything else of huge note, which went on to influence a lot of bands like Broadcast and Stereo Lab. It started off right. a whole genre in itself, in a way. Cool. But um, yeah, it's just it's to I can totally recommend it. As a film, I think everybody gets something out of it, even though I don't think anybody ever came of age like Valerie. I'm very keen to see it. Mm, I can lend it to you if you like. Great, <laughs> please do. And so, did any of you guys have any films that didn't quite make the grade for the top three? I had a couple. Um, so I, I was a bit cheeky in this one, but I kind of wanted to mention Jawbreaker, a great teen <laughs> film from 1999 with um, Rose McGowan. Judy Greer, uh, Rebecca Gayhart, I think is her name. And anyway, it's just lots of fun. It's kind of this trashy teen film about a group of girls who, um, you know, some of them realise that they need to not be such um, shallow people anymore. Um, mm. So there is a little little bit of coming of age in there. And the other one was much more serious. It was um, Celine Sciamma's Girlhood from 2014 oh, about nice. a sort of one girl mostly, but also a group of, of teenagers living in Paris um, in contemporary times. Um, mm. And it's a very beautiful film. Um, sort of, I can't talk too much about it because the ending is, is um, a, you know, it's a bit of a shock. So, but anyway, that's a beautiful film, that one. I agree. The amazing scene where they dance to and sing to Rihanna. Mm. Um, oh my God, I love that movie so much. I would also call out, um, I was going to mention the 1985 Russian film, which I only saw for the first time this year, Come and See, oh, yes. that horrifying, really the worst war film I've ever seen. It's about this boy who goes through uh, World War Two. The, uh, um, oh my god, the way the film ages him, uh, it's, it's quite incredible to watch. Mm -hmm. He does, he totally comes of age, uh, not in a particularly happy way. And then following along from uh, the chum scrubber, that sort of suburban ennui genre, I would uh, call out Thumbsucker with Lou Taylor Pucci, who was one of my all-time favourite actors back when I was a teenager. Um, and though early Noah Baumbach films were all about sort of coming of age in that Squid kind of whale. context. Yeah. Squid and Whale, yeah, mm. yeah. Should we go and see Gremlins or Blue Velvet? Blue Velvet. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I had uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Ghost World, oh, yeah. Show Me Love. Also yeah, Ammo, which I thought yeah. Was amazing. That's a that's definitely a key one. Yeah, that was a very very close call. And Ishi Mama Tambien, I thought was a mm. really great. Oh film. yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool film. About how you can grow up. Um, well, thank you all very much for listening all the way through um, to the end <laughs> of episode two of Cultural Capital. Um, next, do we have plans for the next episode? I think maybe not quite enough. Not yet, now. but we will let you know via Twitter, which you can find us on the Cult Cap Pod on Facebook. Where we, I think we're up to five likes now. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're doing, doing good there. Or you can email us at culturalcapitalpodcast at gmail.com if you have feedback. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Awesome.